Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Dougie's Dungeon podcast. Today we have um, we have Thistle Sifter. So uh, why don't you go ahead and shout yourself out? Okay. Well, mainly I'm just on TikTok at uh, at Thistle Sifter. Uh, I literally just started an Instagram. I don't have any much content on there yet, but it's a uh, Thistle underscore Sifter, and. Uh, that's really all I have to plug. Okay. So uh, I did want to go over the YouTube comments from the last video because one in particular makes me laugh every single time I see it. So if you're listening to this in the future or if you are watching this on YouTube in the future, go ahead and comment on the videos. I read them all. But this person, Michael, says treasure golems pooping treasure as they walk about. Dragons always asleep cool emoji i have no idea what that means but it cracks yeah (laughs) cracks me up every single time i see this and then uh tilted grim says great content my dude hey man thanks i appreciate it all right so now that we have that out of the way um i would like to talk about homebrew stuff like we both have a lot of opinions about like how to approach different kinds of homebrew and so i'm really excited to get into this um let's do it so i guess we should start with top down versus bottom up approach to world building i personally uh, mainly start with a bottom up approach what about you um i tend to start even if i do have like just a village or just like a little small area i i tend to start with world maps so I, I at least know where those that small area I'm starting in, where it is as far as the into- the the larger kind of picture is. Uh, I do tend to start with pantheons and kind of the larger forces at work, and that I feel that that gives me kind of a framework to work on the little things, like the, the I, that way I know what is going to happen in between. If the players go left or right, I know what the the NPCs and the characters I have are going to do based on who they're aligned with or who they worship. So do you like... That's kind of why I start. Do you like basically figure out like big major players and factions in the world yes. first before you like sit down at the table? Uh, I have a... I know we're, we're getting into kids campaign maybe a little bit later, but I... Uh, ex- Including the kids campaign, I all almost always have like the main factions, at least the main factions, and maybe like a the the leader and a couple of their like right hand men or women. But okay. I, I, before I get started, that way, like I said, if you can, regardless of what the party does, once they hit an encounter, if I know who this person is attached to and what their goals are. Regardless of what the party does, I ha- I know what will come of that. So I I kind of do it the opposite way. I when I create like a fresh new world or whatever, usually what I do is I'll just kind of come up with like a style of game I want to play, and then okay. I'll just kind of like throw my players in the world like here's the central location that the players can kind of branch out from and the story evolves from there um like i i guess starting with like an overarching map is like a really good idea 
But for me, whenever you come up with a map first, I feel like it restricts your creativity because instead of being like, okay, like I want to do like an underwater dungeon today. Well, if you already have an overarching map, you know, maybe the closest thing that you have for like an adventure where the party is, you know, there's no way for you to have like an underwater session or anything like that unless you kind of pull something out of nowhere. Um, but like, you know, if you're in the middle of the mountains, where are you going to have an underwater, you know, session or something like that, or like a new creative type of dungeon that you just want to throw in? Because I feel if you do bottom up, then you could like, you know, just have them appear, like come across a cool dungeon and then you throw that in and be like, all right, now that is a solid place. So like what I usually do or like to do is have the players discover the map as I'm building the world with the players. So it's like a discovery between all of us. You know what I mean? Okay. Well, and, and uh, well, to go back to what you were saying on, like if they're tra- trekking through the mountains, how, like how do you throw a, an underwater cavern or something in there? And uh, like my, my first thought was it's a dwarven city that had somehow have a, uh, you know, a mountain spring or some lake up on a mountain broke and flooded the dwarven city. Now you have an underwater c- encounter in the mountains. There's ways to get to it, but I do get what you're saying because if with doing a kind of top down approach, you're going to wind up with a lot of material that your players will never come in contact with. Yeah, and I'm a lazy it, dungeon. It is a good master. way to get your heart broken. Yeah, and I'm a lazy dungeon master, so like the least amount of prep work that I can do personally is the way that I go about it. But I, you know, I know not a lot of dungeon masters are like that. I used to be like that, you know, overprepared dungeon master that does like um like over preps and and like tries to come up with every NPC name ahead of time and their motives and what they're doing and now like just you know, I uh just don't care, you know? <laughs> That's too yeah. much of my well, personal I, time. So I just kind of, like, I don't know, we'll find out together, you know? And I, and I get that, but there, I will say that there is a fine line between even doing a top-down approach, you still have to leave room for your players. Uh, like you're saying, with, yeah. if you're doing a top-down approach, I don't need every single NPC in this town's name but I, like I said, I generally start with like the maybe the leader and a right hand man and a contact. See, I don't even so the first go, time. I don't even go that far. I will have just like a list of like different um, like cultural names for different races, and then just like a generic list of um like professions or something. And then whenever I'm running the game. Uh, if the players interact with an NPC, I could just, you know, go to the chart, pull, you know, a name out yeah. of a hat and be like, all right, this is now their name. And then I write that and down in my notes. So like, I don't even figure out who's who ahead of time. Largely, I just, you know, uh, most of the things are kind of nameless unless I have like a specific NPC in the mind. Like, um, so chat's saying I might sound like a noob, but what exactly is a top-down approach so a top-down approach is where you build up your world before your players step foot in it 
so top down would be like coming up with the entire pantheon coming up with the major players and factions in the world coming up with uh country lines and lore about specific locations and all that kind of stuff um usually when you have npcs they're set in the world and while that's good for like continuity's sake like I agree like that, you know, continuity and you need like a certain level of that no matter what you're doing as a dungeon master. Um, me personally, I just go the opposite direction with that. But yeah, that's that's top down approach. And then bottom up is the opposite of that. It's where you kind of improv most things. And usually you'll start in one center location and then the players will venture out from there. And it's like a discovery with the players and the dungeon master alike. So that's the difference between top down and bottom up. Uh, if I could, uh, and it, a kind of a simplified example of it would be the difference between like, uh, like Tolkien, where he has all the countries, he has all the languages, the royalty of all the countries, the who they worship, how they do business, and then a bottom up approach is almost like a video game where whatever the players are seeing. It, beyond that, we don't need to worry about it. Yeah. You only kind of worry about it once the players are getting close to it. Um, for me personally, one of the reasons why I actually kind of had to switch to um, a bottom-up approach and more of like a player-focused game is because I personally had a really bad issue with my precious setting syndrome. And so okay. when I was doing top-down... I didn't want my players meddling in the affairs of my world, my precious world. And so I personally had to make the switch because it was a detriment to my table because I was getting too stingy, I guess you could say. So that's why I personally which, go the opposite direction. I self-corrected. Which I want to say I do 100% understand that because that is, especially doing top-down, when you're starting, you know, big picture and working your way down, it it's real easy to get that uh that my precious setting, setting syndrome. syndrome. Yeah, you got to be really careful Where, or like intentionally not. Um, yeah, you, you got to stop yourself. It's you got to be really careful. Well, and I used I kind of did the opposite when I was younger. I wouldn't all almost everything I had in my campaigns was improv. I might think about it a little bit. I might jot down a note somewhere, but I would get to the session. I wouldn't have any notes. I would just, okay, where were we? Okay, we're starting from there, and just whatever came out, came out. And I think as I got more used to kind of having, to building a world, it got easier for me to just kind of kind of build a general framework without any putting, putting any designs and details into it. Yeah, you kind of like found your boundaries as a dungeon master. Yes, because I, as I've as I've started as I've gotten older, the people I DM for have, you know, are all cl close to my age group. So I, I feel like I need to give a little bit more, like you were saying, a little bit better continuity, a little bit more consistency. And I am awful about writing notes during a session. So if I already have it written down before the session, I don't have to worry about it while I'm DMing. That's that's kind of my philosophy on 
bottom on coming top down. Yeah. I kind of also have the same issue with like writing notes during the session. I am terrible at that. Like I'm in the moment. I'm doing voices. I'm doing like characteristics, like, you know, I'm coming up with NPCs on the fly. Like I don't have time to write anything down unless it's like a name for an NPC. So like I'll have to spend like an hour or two afterwards. Just like what was hap- What happened? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I am lucky enough. Uh, my wife, who plays in my campaign, she is our our lore keeper, our note taker, and especially like uh, we had a long break during COVID, and then we had a lot of. Anytime we have like, we'll miss a couple sessions. I'll go to my wife and be like, "Hey, can I could I see your notes?" <laughs> I'm the DM, but I'm like, "Hey, you, what did I say when y'all got into town? Who was that? Okay, that's who it was. That's right. That, I, I knew that. I knew I, that." always love those types of players they're the greatest the the note takers the they are the unseen sung heroes of the party absolutely every everyone every, at everyone the table. player everyone has an opinion on min maxing but the lore keeper no, you can't sing enough praise about them yeah they're like they're like the people who like just take up cleric they're like yeah i'll be healer like those are the type of people who are like they're good people you know <laughs> absolutely and so, all, all the better if you're a lore keeper and you can fit somewhere in your character's backstory that they, they like taking notes, whether it be a, a wizard or a bard who is, you know, writing down this epic ballad of his adventures, something like that. If you can work it in there, all the better. Yeah, that would be that's cool. Just, that's just a nice little touch. <laughs> uh, so, like, campaign settings. Let's talk about that. Like, uh, do you... Do you have like your own like consistent campaign setting? I have nothing near consistent as far as campaign settings go. Almost every campaign I have ran has been in its own world. I, I guess I don't know if it's just me getting bored with the world or getting a new idea and getting infatuated with another world, but I rarely, I can think of maybe one time I've ran two different campaigns in the same setting. Isn't that exhausting, creating new worlds? Uh, I do it anyway. Because <laughs> I'm the even, complete even opposite. Even if I had one. Like, Dredgemade says, like, they're the complete opposite. I'm also the complete opposite. Like, I I have, like, I have a consistent world that has, like, all the same laws of physics and, like, all of the same, I guess, people when the players start. But after that, right, because I've built this same campaign setting after years, but like after that, like I don't like it's I I can't come up with a new one every single time. Like that's exhausting for me. took me long enough to come up with the one I have, you know? Well, I don't I'm not diagnosed with ADD or anything, but I I'm near certain that I have it and that might be part of it. I. But it, we, as far back as I can remember, I remember being five, six years old, jumping on the trampoline, fighting hordes of ninjas and making up superheroes and villains. And and when I found D&D, it was just something that allowed me to quantify everything that I've, I had been building the previous you know 13 years I was alive. So I I just make up worlds and make up villains and make up stories. D&D just allows me to uh, a medium to share that with people. That's that's one of the reasons I'm so drawn to DMing. I I I will make up worlds and campaigns and 
great adventures, D&D just allows, gives me a way to use what I make up. So I think that's one of the reasons I have just so many campaign worlds. Um, it's, it's almost an addiction. <laughs> <laughs> like you got one world. It's like, I got one world for this. I got one world for this. I got one world for that. Yeah. Like, no, I, I see, I go the opposite. Like my, uh, my homebrew setting, I'm actually quite proud of it. If you want to hear about it. Oh, absolutely. Let's get into it. So my campaign setting that I'm like, I'm like developed over the years, like I've changed things, but um it's on a real quick how long have you been working on this campaign i just i need to know personally so i've changed all a lot of the stuff over the years but like the main there's like some main factions there or some like main characters or bbegs that are the same i've changed the geography a couple times because i wanted to do different things um but like the main campaign setting idea is like fairly consistent over the years. I think probably I think this one is probably four or five years. It's called Brinklands. It's the name of my campaign setting. Um, it's a place okay. that's like always on the brink of destruction, like from one threat or another. Um, uh, have you, have you seen one punch man? Yes, I have. So, so kind of like how they have the cities that are constantly under attack of super villains. So they just, like, oh, yeah, this city was destroyed. Let's get back to rebuilding it. So is it kind of like it's not like necessarily like it's not necessarily like that. So I plop my players in like probably 10 years before like a major um, like some of the major events. And then my games will usually take not like actual real life years, but years in the game for the players to actually progress through them because I like aging mechanics. Like I like it when like, you know, you create a character that's 30 years old, you know, 10 years is a significant amount of time. Like by the, by the time you're going to finish my campaign with me, you're going to be, you know, 20 years have gone by. I like to kind of keep it around, um, you know, a year level, you know what I mean? Okay. But so, so yeah, I, go ahead. Uh, I was just saying, I, I don't, I don't actually even mess with aging mechanics any. Oh, you should. Very, very rarely. Oh, you should. They're, they're well, really, really fun. I know there's not a whole lot in 5e, but from other editions and older not. games, there is a lot more stuff you could do with it. It's really cool. Uh, yeah, I remember in older editions, there were actually, like, as you aged, there were different, it would change your stats. It would bump, like, I want to say, like, wisdom or intelligence up. Yeah, wisdom, and then, like, charisma, down. and uh, intelligence would go up by one, but then your strength, dexterity, and constitution would go down by two, and then it was cumulative. So I think the next level would be negative four to your body stats, but plus two to your mental stats. Yeah. I know it was something like that. But I, I think my... Me not having it might be a maybe a byproduct of my my incessant campaigns world switching. Yeah, because there's there's not a whole lot of time to like yeah one right. 
So yeah, my campaign setting is set on a planet that's like an eyeball planet or like a tidally locked planet. So it's always facing the sun. So it's always daylight in my world. And then there's a moon that rotates around the planet. And every 10 years, there is a uh, month long, uh, month long, what's it called when the moon goes in front of the sun? Eclipse. eclipse, a month long eclipse. And on the other side of the planet that the the characters are on, there are like these weird esoteric like Cthulhu Lovecraftian monsters. Yeah. That can't like reach the other side of the planet because of the sunlight. Like it like burns them. And so like you have the twilight lands. And so you have, uh, that's like where it's uh, like the light reaches the dark. Yeah. Yeah. And the, that's the outer ring. And that area is extremely dangerous because, um, these Lovecraftian monsters will come out and attack the like they'll they can withstand like the sun for a little bit amount of time so the twilight lands are extremely dangerous and like if you venture to those areas you're considered to be you know pretty crazy or like really sure of yourself and you probably won't survive very long that's where the that's where you go to prove yourself as a hero yeah what i'm hearing yeah (laughs) um there's like a lot of lost civilizations out there that have like attempted to build something on the on the twilight lands there's um also in my world there is a like a, like a government i get like loosely based like there's a civilization on the other side of the dark side of the planet but it's way too powerful for the uh players to handle in like a normal campaign that's like level 17 plus because that's when i throw in like all the weird crazy monsters um yes but um so anyway yeah every 10 years the entire world essentially has to go into hiding in the great citadel and the great citadel is just like think of attack on titan that big huge city where all the titans have to like break through multiple barriers that is the great citadel and so everyone has to work together all the races have to work together to survive during that month because, you know, the monsters are coming to get to eat anything. They're hungry. They'll just eat absolutely anything in that well, time. Well, yeah, if there's, there's no, you know, vegetation. There's no, uh, yeah. like, grazing animals for them to feed off of. So, yeah, I bet they, I bet it's a, so does it, when the month-long eclipse happens, is it, or do the monsters have a force behind them or is it just the ones that happen to be able to find the citadel get to try and attack it or is it is there a driving force behind it see that's the thing that's that's that sneaky oh. civilization thing that's like out there and no one really knows about it. the players don't know about it but like it seems mindless when they attack but nobody really knows so that's how okay. i kind of do it you know who knows <laughs> But that way, um, so, the reason why I have like one center or, or the reason why I've gone towards like the one central location, the Great Citadel, is because you can have all the races work together. You could have like you can have one big consolidated city. And then when the players leave to go venture out, like there are some civilizations out there, but, you know, they're farming and doing all this kind of stuff. And, you know, the the geography of the 
outer world can kind of change from campaign to campaign. So the only constant is how the planet looks and the great citadel. And then everything else can be whatever I want it to be. And that's how I, you know, it's still a bottom up approach to the world because the world is fresh every time, I guess you could say. Right. Because what's, what populates the map is different every, every campaign that I run. Okay. So now do you, when you start players in this, in your campaign world, you said you had it for five years. So I'm assuming you ran a, like a couple of campaigns. How do you, do you start them in the Citadel or do you start that? Is the Citadel like the big city they get to eventually? Yeah. So this, so there's the Citadel is sometimes I start them in the Citadel. Sometimes I don't. Um, sometimes it's really fun to just start them, not in the twilight lands, of course, but like just, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, they're in a tavern because this local city needs help or something like that, you know, because there are cities, there are some small towns outside of the great citadel. The citadel is just where everyone retreats to during that year. I mean, it's right, a 10 year cycle. So there's migrations that, you know, everyone knows when it's coming. So it's, it's not like um, uh, the Game of Thrones where... The where yeah, the it's summer not lasts random. however long or okay. Okay. Yeah, cuz I think the winters are random in Game of Thrones. Yeah, it, they just happen. They know that's coming eventually. That's all they know. That would be awful. Yes, that would that'd be terrible. <laughs> and not knowing how, like how long the winter's going to be. Like uh I remember yeah. some I mean, that would be a cool thing to throw into a game, like a campaign setting. Like, yeah, winter started and we don't know how long winter is going to last. So, like, all the food is drying up. Like, it's a, <laughs> there's a famine. That'd be kind of a weird game to play yeah. in. Or I was thinking you could start, like, as, like, the first snow falls in the north. So, like, winter, winter is here. It is knocking at our door. And now all the all the city states or all the nations that you have are now fighting for resources in order to stock up. That, that seems like a time that would just be rife with all kind of shenanigans the players to get it, for the players to get into. Yeah. That'd be kind of cool. Um, so do you, how do you feel about starting in a tavern? I think starting in a tavern is, it is a bit, bit cliched. It is, it can be overdone. But I often see it as when people... It's a classic, man. When I hear... <laughs> there, yeah, there's a, there's a reason it's a cliche. Like, people normally, you know, congregate in a tavern. And I feel that having... I, I feel it gets too cliched when it's just, okay, you, you, you the party, are in this tavern. What do you do? Well, that's, that's, where it's, that's where it's a little flat for me. I think that's the just, detriment of like, I think that's just new players not knowing how to use taverns or like maybe even experienced players not knowing how to use taverns. Like, uh, like I never just start my players off in a tavern and like, what do you do? Cause that's, that's boring. Like that's the issue. That's the problem. That's why it's a cliche. Everyone hates. Cause it's like, you start in a tavern I don't know how to get this campaign running, so we're just going to sit here awkwardly for two hours and the goblin attacks, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's 
that's why you have party members who uh, like we started in a tavern and then the sorcerer got bored and threw a fireball. Well, that's that's why there was there was nothing there was no hook. There was if there's no hook or lead, it's it's always and this I can't say always, but I feel it's usually better to give the player something to react to until they they are following a course until they're like, hey, DM, this is what we're doing. Then you can kind of let them let them guide. But as the DM, it's your job to kind of get them started, get them moving just a little bit. I feel. So what I actually do is when I tell the players that they're going to be starting in a tavern, I say that they're going to meet uh, like a patron, like a someone who's hired them. So they're being signed up for a job or like they've signed up for a job already. And uh, chat's saying, but a plot hook in a tavern would work in the tavern would work. I'm not sure I understand, but anyway, like I start the players going to meet someone who's hired them. And that way, like you automatically, you have them like have an objective, like they're meeting someone and you know, they've already signed up for the job and all the players have to do when they start the game for their, you know, backstory is why did they take the job? Super easy to get into. Like, why are you taking this job? You may not know what the job is, but why are you there? Why do you need the money? Why do you, are you trying to get out of somewhere? Do you just need the money for something else? Are you, you know, in between, you know, in between jobs and this is all you could do? to make ends meet, you know, it could be anything. It doesn't matter, but you're going somewhere. You have an objective and super easy for you as a DM to be like, all right, cool. I'm hiring you to go into this dungeon or I'm hiring you to go clear out this goblin camp. Like it could be a merchant that's like, you know, wanting to keep this road clear so that whenever they bring good, like they're trying to make sure the road is safe before they transport goods through it. Like, you know, and yeah, they hire a patrol. Yeah, like, yeah, I, I agree. Having, because that's where the current campaign, which actually is, it's uh, the current campaign I'm running is Icewind Dale, uh, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. So it's it's the first module I've ever ran. But I started the party in a tavern. But I knew before we started, before we even got to session zero, I had already talked to all my players about why why are you here. Why are you in the far north where there's nothing good? Why why are you meeting in this tavern? Okay, you you two meet and y'all want to talk about this. And why are you coming here? I had I knew why they were there. They were they were kind of instead of using an NPC to be like, hey, here is the mission. I had kind of given all my players a reason to be in Icewindale and a reason to try and find a party to work with instead of having being in and starting the campaign and saying, okay, well, why is the, you know, lawful good paladin and the chaotic evil rogue, why are they on the same team? I already had those questions answered before we started the campaign. So it's not, you know, like you said, two hours of everyone sitting there kind of, figuring out what they're doing they can jump in and start as soon as we get the session going yeah uh dredge maze says really location doesn't matter the game just needs to start with a hook actually i wonder exactly. if you could use in media res in tabletop games i uh, if 
if I'm not mistaken, in media res is like where you start in the middle of something. I actually, if that's the case, I do this all the time. Like I'll just start the players like in the middle of a dungeon. Like you're there, you have to get out. And that's, that's something I haven't done, but is, I think is a great idea. Yeah. Like the closest st- to that I've done. Yeah. I was just saying the closest to that I've done is the, my last campaign they started on a mission. They were right outside the the people they were going to go talk to. They were at the other enemy's hideout. They knew what they were doing. This is where we started the campaign as a whole was, you know, five minutes before an encounter. No, I'm I'm talking about like I'll just start the game, like roll initiative. Oh, yeah. You're in combat. Like <laughs> like when I've I have had that go awry a little bit because if if the players aren't, uh, I I know you were you said something about like just dropping them into a dungeon, and I've had players they started in a dungeon and as soon as they got out of their restraints, they got their they got a couple of weapons and they started in on each other. I'm not saying that's common. But I have ran into it before, where the the players don't have yeah the whole. I, I guess they were thing. kind of like a bit of a well. It's what my character would do. Well, my my character is in here, and he's he is you know he's rough. He's going to do whatever needs to be done, and if I have to you know hurt hurt the other party member, that's 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 not how we can do that. So I think I don't know. Whenever I, think, I have, I think uh, that was my party. Yeah, whenever uh, that's I have, what I'm saying it was party specific. I think whenever I have people like that at my table, I will just flat out tell them like, "No, we're not doing player versus player. We're not doing this. You are in control of your character. You do not get to pull the. It's what my character would do. You need to make justifications for your character to be a like to work with the party. You don't have to be like." goody two shoes but you definitely have like if you're gonna sit down at my table your character has to be a team player like that's non-negotiable that 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 was a uh a campaign when i was younger so i to be fair i probably wasn't the best dm uh i've learned a lot since then but it is and i feel like adults actually understand that like that concept of like (laughs) this is the one time a week i get to play dungeons and dragons i'm gonna do everything i can to be a team player (laughs) You know, right? When and the 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 phrase that everyone hates is what my character would do. Well, my question for those players: if your character wants to do something that's not in line with what the camp where the campaign is going, because I I know when I start a campaign, at least by session after session zero, I try and nail down why the person would be in a party. And if you want to play a, a character that's if the if the campaign is you know the the big hero's quest, the large overarching story, then why do you have a, a character that has no connection to being here? Why, why do you have a character that's trying to fight everyone? Did, were you really trying to make a character for this campaign? It's Yeah, and ultimately those are like all issues that need to kind of be stomped out at session zero. If you're, yeah. And if you don't do session zeros, if you're listening or watching this, and if you don't do session zeros, you need to start doing session zeros. This is your time to like build characters together, work out any of these kinks you're having or that you're, you know, problems that you're running into. You can iron these out way quicker 
and not eat into the actual playtime if you just, you know. What I do for session zero is I have all of my players ask Dredge Mage. They know. I have all my players fill out a questionnaire before they sit down at my table. Like, if especially if it's a group of like people I've never gamed with before, they're 100% filling out a questionnaire. And that may seem harsh, but that's just the reality of it. Like, I want to hash these out so we can just get to gaming, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and another great thing for those of you who may not be doing a session zero, a session zero allows a lot of my, pl I've had players who, like, they have a general idea of the character and, like, how they want their character to live in the world. But having, allowing that session zero and allowing your players to kind of talk a little bit about their backstories to each other will sometimes shake something loose. And a character who had kind of like a, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just adventuring for gold. Like, something one of the other players may may say or may bring up from their backstory may shake something loose for that player who has a very, a very minimal backstory. It may allow them to kind of come up with something and work something together so they have a... Because any, I love when my characters have a backstory together. Like even if yeah, it's like just yeah, like they a know little, each other or like their siblings. No, exactly. Yeah. I, in my current campaign, my my son and my wife, both of their characters are uh, actually twins, and it's it allows them to have just so much in talk, and it also helps explain why in combat when they like okay they're going to do this, and I it allows the it allows the characters to be able to play off of each other, even if the campaign just started. They already have a little bit of history together, so they know, kind of know how the other person will react to certain situations. Yeah. And I think that can help a lot with role-playing. and Like the Frodo and, and Sam to the Fellowship of the exactly. Ring. You know, Frodo and Sam were, you know, they started that adventure, you know, knowing each other. Like, if you just start your campaign, like, at, um, what is it, the city of elrond you know rivendell yeah rivendell yes. if rivendell. you just start your um players at rivendell like everything before that should have been the backstory like you know mary pippin frodo like just getting to rivendell was their backstory they were already knew each other that's four people that knew each other like you know if these are players or whatever you know but these are four people that knew each other before they even started the campaign and that's the kind of cool stuff and like, I agree. And if we're just going to be using Lord of the Rings as a reference for something we talked about earlier, we can talk about the whole, like, uh, it's what my character would do. Look at Gimli and look at Frodo. If you are constantly going to be like, well, it's what my character would do. No, that's that's not fun. I want a relationship like that's like Legolas and Gimli. Like by the end of it, Absolutely. those two are thick of thieves. Like that's the kind of that's the kind of characters you should be em like emulating. Like if you're going to say that's what my character would do. Yes. Do that. It, it, and like you said, it's, I feel with, with adults, I know, uh, the campaign I have, the party I have right now, my main party, they like, we don't get to play every week out of the six people that show up to play. If the only person who doesn't have kids is my son, who is 11. Everyone else has full-time jobs. They have all this other work to do. So when we do get time to actually play D&D, &D, 
we no one wants to be that stick in the mud. No one wants to slow down the session because we're all excited to be there. And we have already agreed that we this is the game we are playing, and this is this is the game we are playing, and this is how we we are all going to stick together. For whatever in-game reasons need to be there, one reason or another, this party is, you know, trusting each other. They're not going around, you know, stealing from each other or stabbing each other in the back. They have decided for what, one reason or another to work together. And like you said, like, these, excuse me, these, um, you know, people that are going to be sitting at the table, they have jobs and everything. Like, especially, like, if you're playing with adults, it makes it ever more hurtful when you know, you pull that excuse of it's what my character would do because like you have people that want to come to the table. They want to collaborate. They want to work together. It's even more hurtful in that situation, you know, because this is when the one time of one player. Yeah. That is just like Sorry, throwing a wrench in everything. You know, it's what my character would do. That's if, if you're not, if, if you're that player, knock it off. Like seriously, just knock it off make excuses for your character to work with the party. That is not something I so, will ever back down from. <laughs> I wanted to just for for a quick little tangent, touch yeah, on uh, starting in a tavern again. Uh, I have, I can't remember where I heard it, but I heard some YouTube DM, some social media DM throw out having a campaign in a tavern. Now, it would be a larger tavern. Tavern, think of something more like, uh, like a mod. Like the, in the future, you always see the, like, future dystopias have these mega apartments that have stores and a whole ecosystem inside them. Like having a, just a larger tavern and having a, a campaign that may only go in-game only cover a couple of days, but having the entire campaign in this one tavern. So, like, the, you know, the party would start in a tavern and then have a outbreak of the undead or an outbreak of some extra planar threat, and now we are all in this tavern trying to fight off and keep off. Hello? Looks like we're having some technical difficulties. Uh, so I guess I will have to continue by myself. Chat says that that idea that he was talking about was from Matt Mercer. I really hope we can get this back up. Well, anyway, let's talk about balancing encounters until he can get back. All right, so if you're going to balance your encounters, do not use CR. CR is an absolutely waste of time. Um, if you're going to be balancing encounters, you should use... Um, the metric you should be using is probably their, like their monster abilities. The monster abilities are going to largely be what, uh, what determines the difficulty, because... CR, like, there's definitely monsters consistently that um, kick well above their um, 
well above their weight class. And more often than not, the players will be kicking above their weight class as well. Thistle Sifter is typing in the chat. Let's see what's going on. He can't hear me. All right, well, we're going to... Have him back out and come back in. Anyway. You back? I will pause this. We will uh, be back. I think, uh, oh, am I back yet? We are back. All oh, right. Sorry about that. I'm not sure what happened. It's all good. So maybe I can cut out the section when I <laughs> when I upload this. That'll or whatever. be okay. I don't know. All I was trying right. to hold the uh, the air by myself. <laughs> I wasn't very good at it. Uh, I can't waste the, wait to listen to it and hear what you were saying behind my back. <laughs> oh, I was just kind of BSing about. Uh, CR and how it's useless. Yeah, CR is it's it's a great tool for like first to third level, and then I think after that it starts unwinding. And the higher you go, the faster it unwinds. The higher level you go, I disagree. I'd say level one, it's not even really? like one through three, it's not even consistent because. Like, there are so many, like, level, like, CR 1 and 2 monsters that, like, just punch way above your their weight class. That's true. Uh, the first that comes to mind is a Shadow and an Intellect. I think an Intellect Devourer is like a CR 2. Yeah, it? Intellect Devourer is a pretty nasty. I was going to say Wolf, specifically because, like, they're, well, in older Back, editions... Uh, Pack um, tactics or oh yeah, pack tactics and then like their gra like their bite and drag. Yes, the they when they attack they can knock you prone in fifth edition. Yeah, it's it is definitely one of those. Once, if you have party members that stop that start to go down, it it's a downward spiral real quick. Yeah, it's death spiral. <laughs> um. So we were talking about starting in a tavern controversy when you uh, when you cut out. Do you remember where you left off? Uh, I am not sure. Okay, so we can just go right uh, into the I next was... section, I guess, which is items, like homebrew items. Absolutely. Do you so, have uh, any? What... Do I have any current homebrew items? Yeah, that you use. Um, currently one of, one of the ones I'm using in my current campaign, I, I tend to have my players overpowered. They are 10th level and they are starting off with a rare magic item. Oh, wow. uh, my, my tiefling rogue or not my tiefling rogue, but the tiefling rogue in the party started off with a, it was, a, it's a rare magic item. It's a tattoo that allows her to hold, uh, kind of a smaller levels of infernal contracts so that she is able to essentially make a contract and when she has a contract with someone it gives her uh i'll have to double check but it gives her advantage 
it gives her certain advantages on uh, social encounters with any NPCs that she has a contract with. That's interesting. Do you have like a method for how you, was that like a homebrew item that you use or do you have your own method for like crafting your own magical items? Oh, that, that is a homebrew item I created as Sounds far as cool. a, uh, she, she was very thrilled with it. So, uh, I think it's pretty cool. I think that's, that's one of the things, uh, at least outside of the game metagame, that's one of the things I want. I want when I homebrew an item, I want the player that I'm homebrewing that item for or the player that gets a homebrew item. If it's not made for them, like specifically for them, I want them to be like just kind of have a sense of awe, a sense of just excitement over getting this item that I have you know, meticulously crafted. As far as distinct goals, it, it depends on the magic item. It depends on why I'm why I feel the need to make a magic item. So how do you kind of like go, like how do you approach creating a magic item? Well, the, uh, like wh where do you start? Like, do you start with an idea? Do you start with just like a kind of like a gimmick? Do you start with a person in mind? Yes. <laughs> um, once again, it goes down, it comes to, why I'm making it. If I've I've made magic like a, usually lower level magic items to to help a player kind of I had a player who wasn't exactly feeling they did they weren't getting enough spotlight. Uh I had a there was a bit of my last campaign that was just combat after combat. And that's not what they were geared for. So I gave them a a wand that kind of gave them a little bit more punch in combat. Um, sometimes I, I will start with a gimmick. If I, if I have just a crazy idea, I'll try and pull that out and tease what I can out of it to make an item. But I've made items just off of seeing something that I thought was cool and had the thought, what if that was a magic item? And I'll usually, that's, that's the, those are the magic items I usually have as random treasure. How frequently do you hand them out? Uh, magic items or homebrew items specifically? Both. Both? Mm -hmm. So magic items, I, as I said, I, I personally, like having my characters a little I like them my players to be able to punch above their weight class so I may be a little bit too liberal with my magic items personally I could I could definitely see other DMs uh not being so frivolous with them uh, what about you do you oh do you kind of <laughs> have keep them do you keep them close to the chest or do you Oh no! So just sprinkle them in there. I really so I play in mainly or like I usually run like pretty low magic campaigns. Um, so I I definitely do like to make magic items just more impactful to the game as a whole. But I honestly will just introduce a magic item or like give the players magic items whenever I'm getting bored. 
like whenever i'm getting bored as a dungeon master that's that's when it's time to just introduce a magic item into the game because then that changes everything it changes like especially if trying to stay out of a rut yeah kind of so like instead of like a plus one magic weapon i i don't do that like if i'm gonna give the character a weapon or the player's a magic item all like i would much much rather give them something that's going to change the way the game is played be that like uh like a flaming sword for instance like if i was going to give them a magic weapon or like a magic plus one sword i just give them a flaming sword instead because that changes the game entirely for that character they can use that sword as a utility item they could use that sword for um really anything you can think of like anytime they could use it as a torch they could use it to cook things with they could you know obviously use it to attack things but just having a flaming weapon is significantly more interesting and impactful to the game than a plus one weapon like i don't understand why plus one weapons are a thing to me that is the most boring excuse for a magic item anyone could ever introduce into their game not saying anything bad against anyone who does some games are structured different than mine and i don't care about balance at all i if there's a numerical balance issue i i don't care if it makes the players overpowered for a little while i don't care either because like the game will kind of like figure itself out you know if the players are steamrolling through the game for a while I let that happen. That is the most important thing you should do as a dungeon master. If your players are killing Absolutely. their monsters and there's they're they're like just running through them, let them do that for a while. Absolutely let them do that for a while. Don't freak out. You're going to freak out and you're going to like run through a lot of content, but let them do it. That is when they're going to have the most fun. That's where the power fantasy comes from. And then Absolutely. After a while, I will either, you know, there's roundabout ways to like, you know, if something was a little too powerful, I'll take it away in some way. Like it'll break or it'll be stolen or um, it just will stop working and they got to figure out why, you know, Th there's ways that you can kind of write in to take it out. Um, right. Or well, I mean, if, if the party is running around with an, with a legendary item or an artifact or even, you know, a very rare item or a rare item at lower levels, like other people would hear about that. Yeah. And they absolutely. may want that item for themselves. That's yeah. I, I love having, so, I, I players hate it when you take their items back though. It. But I, I like having it explained. Like I don't, not just someone, but before I take that item as a DM, I want to know why that person is taking the item and where it's going. Yeah, so the players can always like get it back at a later date. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if they like it. But um but yeah, like other than that, I don't mind letting my players feel overpowered for a while. And then that means I get to throw all the cool monsters at them because I know absolutely. they can handle it. Like that's, that's when I can part. That's when I can throw an owl bear at the party at level three, you know? <laughs> well, I do want to touch on uh you were saying you were talking about plus one magic items. Mm -hmm. I agree. A Just a normal, like, this is a sword, and it gives you a plus one. It's very boring. It's very bland and flat. And I think the easiest thing to do would be to... Uh, I don't recall where I got this, this tip from either, but 
thank someone, uh, having just giving a, a sword a name. Uh, once again, I know we go back to Tolkien, uh, like Stinger. Yeah, or just having a plus one item have a name. Exactly, having a giving an an item a backstory that the players can find out will make that item a bit more special. However, comma, if I'm giving out a plus one item, I will have it do at least a little something different. Yeah, just a, and just you, a, it should be that flavor. way. Yeah, and it should be that way. Now, I, I have had uh, very high magic campaigns where where plus one weapons are like are common enough that like the players have started off with them and so finding a plus like finding a plus one weapon like as a as treasure from you know a dungeon or as a gift from an npc wouldn't do anything so just having i'm trying i was actually looking for it but in the dungeon master's guide there's a chart of just like slight magical effects like just little magical buffs and yeah. i feel like adding things like that to a plus 1 gives it a lot more flavor and makes it a lot more unique than just another plus 1 uh one thing that i really like doing was uh when i was playing pathfinder first edition they came out with like a god's book that had a whole bunch of like different god boons there are various different things okay. like you would have bonuses on certain types of roles it would give you generic bonuses i but what i would love doing is i'd love taking those god boons so if you're interested in that go look at the uh inner sea gods book from pathfinder first edition you can find it on archives of netthis.com but uh taking those boons okay. and just making a magic item out of them um it doesn't have to be anything like necessarily complicated but boons were just a lot cooler than the generic magical effects that came on magic items when I was playing that game, at least. So I did yeah. want to ask you, how do you go about, like, do you have, like, a magic shop? Or how do you go about giving out magic items? Because I have a way so, that I do it. But I'm, I'm interested in how you do okay. yours. Okay. So I've done it a couple of different ways, uh, but even in my my highest magic magic settings, magic item shops are not common. They to me it just makes sense that if if you have everyone selling, you know, especially the lower like common or uncommon magic items, and you can buy them at a general shop, then more people would have them. And yeah. I, I feel like that's that's just getting a bit a bit too much. But I, I will have a couple magic item shops. Usually you're going to find uh, common, uncommon items. And then, of course, healing potions, maybe a couple like higher potions or not. No, nothing I'd say nothing very rare would be in any of my common most of my my magic item shops in my kids campaign. I have a creature who's, he doesn't have a face. He's essentially just an overcoat and a different hat every time they've ran into him. But he has any magic item in the, in the, in the Dungeon Master's Guide and pretty much any magic item on D&D &D Beyond up to very rare. 
Now, they, they sell all of them at a premium. They, he sells them above asking price, so the players haven't been able to get any of them yet. But I do like having it just out of their touch, just out of their reach. And I did it in the kids' campaign so they can kind of have, have an idea of what items they can add on their character, what items they can, their characters can hope to get kind of let them have a, a little bit of a wish list because they've they've not played long enough to have to know what kind of magic items are out there. Yeah. So I wanted to be able to show them whereas in an adult campaign adults my adult campaign tend to have a a chance of kind of ruining it. Like if you have a magic item shop that has rare magic items in it the players are going to try and find a way to rob it. Yeah. <laughs> almost every time. So you got to be real careful with it. I don't know what it like. I've had one group actually um, where I, I was so proud of them. I was genuinely proud of them. They went through in it like the same group went through an entire dungeon without killing a single goblin, not a one. That is impressive. I was so proud of them. They solved it completely. The entire dungeon without a single like sword swing. I was amazed. That is And then on top of that. Yeah, I know. And then on top of that, like I was throwing magic items at the at them. Like I was like baiting them. They went down into um like a crypt or something. I was baiting them really, really, really hard. I was magic items lined the walls. They didn't touch a single thing nothing they wanted oh. none of it and same thing with the shop that, like there was a there was shop like the shopkeep was like and it wasn't a shop it was like a tent right it was like an old man had some magical artifacts or whatever it was at like a like a festival none of them stole a thing there was even a rogue in the party none of them i was so now, so proud but all, also kind of like i don't know man i, I just <laughs> found that one group or you know they can't they went into that cave with a focus a single-minded focus <laughs> yeah they did they just didn't want to kill anything um but yeah i let them do that too but i actually to go back to the whole magic item thing i kind of do the same thing that you do for your kids campaign but for my my world i have a character called the curator um called the curator and have you ever played Resident Evil 4 with that uh the guy in the trench coat he like opens yes. it up and he's like what are you buying? Like I have that guy in my game and he's called the curator and like he has any magic item that you could that you'll need but no guarantees it'll work. So like the players will you know you can buy anything <laughs> you want and like whatever he has on hand cuz his his inventory will change. So I'll just come up with like a random roll list and he shows up randomly. Like the players can't seek him out. Yeah. And that way it's kind of like a way to control the flow of magic items in the game. But like the players will have to use the items to make sure that they work. And he's already, he'll be like long gone before they discover that the items don't work, you know, but you know, and then they get mad at him whenever he comes back around. They're like, Hey, you, uh, you screwed us over last time. And then I'll be like, all right, well, do you want more magic items? You could buy more. 
<laughs> um, chat okay, saying, I tell you what, this time we'll give you 25% off. <laughs> no, not even. <laughs> <laughs> like, you like you have to be nice to him, because he's the only guy that can... And he oh, pops, then he'll just run. Yeah, and then he pops up out of nowhere, so it's not like you can steal from him. But chat's saying, last time a game I played, uh, I had a magic item shop. I bought a portable hole and robbed the whole shop. Yeah, that's the thing that I want to avoid. That's why I have the curator. <laughs> so uh, I played a little home game for a minute. And uh, it, I was it was actually my wife who DM'd. And uh, she had a magic item shop. And me and my son, we were playing like 8th or ninth, I think ninth level characters. And I had a ninth level order of the scribe wizard, and he had a rogue. And we cleared out a. It was all like uncommon and maybe a few rare magic items, but we cleared the shop out. We went in, scoped everything out. Uh, I can't remember all the spells we used, but it. We were able to go in and steal the majority of the things, and then we. We already had a kind of a fence, someone to sell stolen goods to. We already had a fence lined up. We got the items, sold them, and got away with it. And uh, that's one way to make your DM pull their hair out. Well, so I will let my players do that. Like, I'll let them go through, and I'll let them steal absolutely everything. Like, I won't worry about it. But, like, you got to understand, this is a magic item shop. Like, there's going to be ways to, uh, like, this is going to happen more than once. Like, the owner of the place knows a thing or two and so i always have it to like one of the things i like doing is the players will steal everything right and then they'll leave the item shop and then everything reappears on the shelves like they won't notice until they go and look and then all their stuff's gone like all the stuff that they stole is not there or um like are you are you like casting it's, it's magically tagged yeah yeah so unless you like buy it and the shop owner like turns over the right or the property to you it's gonna reappear on the shelf where it was also like unless you're casting like non-detection or like mind blank or something like that yeah like people are gonna know that you stole it like there's ways to find out and if there's a magic like a magic item shop i guarantee you the owner of the place knows how to figure out who stole his stuff and then they're going to come looking for the players. Yeah, that's that's when the players find out that the the owner of the magic item shop was also a, you know, he's a he makes magic items. He's a buddy with the the mages guild. So now you have a guild's mage looking for you. Yeah, with the backing of an entire guild, and like you're considered armed and extremely dangerous. Well, yeah, you you stole a shop full of magic items. They're they they need those back. So do you um do you do like a lot of magic item crafting or do you do you have like a lot of just kind of generic magic items that you homebrew or do you have like a few items that you have like kept on to um that you like reintroduce constantly into your world Um so I tend to have Similar to my campaign settings, I tend to make more and more magic items. And sometimes instead of completely homebrewing another magic item, I'll, I'll reflavor it or adjust some of the mechanics if they're, you know, 
if the next party is a higher level or lower level, I'll adjust it a little bit. But uh, I guess I kind of do. I recycle some of them, but especially if I have a, a NPC, like a, a significant NPC, then they tend to have magic items for them. But for the as far as the the magic items that the players will come into contact with, it's it's a mix of both. I I tend to make a lot of brand new magic items. One of one of the magic items I made for my last campaign, my son had a, a champion fighter Goliath who just walked around with a his shield essentially would grow in size and become more like a tower shield and his Goliath wielded it similar to a weapon. And that was a, a magic item. It's a magic item that I homebrewed and we wound up homebrewing feats for him to use it. That's cool. Better as he grew in level. Do you do, well, like, I mean, do you do that often like homebrew feats and stuff? Cause I do that kind of stuff constantly. Like I have like my own like disposable shield feat, like where you can, uh, basically like sacrifice um like if you were going to take like a killing blow you can like a, use a reaction and like take all of the damage to the shield and then any damage that would go through the shield like after it was destroyed would then go to your body so if you have like an adamantine shield it would like really really work <laughs> but um it's like a disposable shield feat so um you can like last so it's a protect feat yourself. that allows you yeah that's nice um, so do you do that often? Like making your own feats and stuff? Um, I have a, I don't do it as often. I don't homebrew feats as often as I homebrew probably monsters and monsters is probably what I homebrew the most, but I, I have a fair number of feats that I've homebrewed. Um, trying to think some off the top of my head. You said you homebrew monsters more often than not. Uh, do you have any off the top of your head that you really enjoy, I guess, like throwing in? Because I have a couple that I use constantly, especially for metagamers. So, oh, yes. Uh, so as far as, as homebrewing monsters, I want to go over... there. There's a, And really any monsters, magic items, or feats... There's different ways to homebrew. You can, like I was saying earlier, is kind of scale it up or down to kind of fit where the the party's level is at. You can reflavor it, and then it's like a pure homebrew. I have so many monsters that don't have a a Wizards of the Coast equivalent, but my my feats and magic items tend to be more more adjusted. Like to fall, do, in, they they more fall in line with like what wizards would do. Yes, I, and I I feel I do that a, not so much for balance and reasoning, so much as balancing as far as you know CR and all of that. It's it where the party is and what they're going up against is kind of how I'll I'll gauge how much I need to change the feats and magic items. But monsters, I will start with an idea of like where the party is going and a cool thing that could be there when they get there. And I will run from there with monsters. Uh, you asked 
uh, you were talking about an example, one that I was very excited for. The party didn't get into a fight with him, did not. But uh, I, he, he, he went by like two sessions as just the prospector. Like they got to a mining camp and were traveling around and people would talk about the prospector. Oh, you want to leave the prospector alone? The prospector, you know, like built up the prospector and he was a, a humanoid elemental, kind of like a, like between humanoid and elemental, closer to elemental than a Ganazi. Okay. He had uh, Earth Glide. He had, like his, his natural armor was just the, he had organs and kind of a, a humanoid anatomy, but was was covered in essentially a layer of stone. Like calcification? He, cl- no, literal stone. Okay. It, it wasn't something that like grew on him. It wasn't like a, a... It wasn't like chitin or anything. It was it was literal stone. He He slept in a kind of a pool of of earth. He he was a he was an elemental that I was I had built up. This was right during this he was supposed to come into the campaign right before coronavirus started and we couldn't play for a while. But he he was just this he was only like 5 foot tall but he was like 4 or 5 foot wide at the shoulders and just this gruff little guy who just wanted to just wanted to mine, just wanted to work the earth, and uh, he he scared the party, so I feel that was a compliment. Anytime you can get a monster that's that makes the party think twice about attacking, you're doing something right. One of my favorite um, monsters that I reuse quite often, uh, do you ever play Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time? Yes, I have. You know the re-deads whenever you like walk out of the like Temple of Time for the first time and you got like all these little zombie things walking around? Yes. Yeah, the re-deads. Okay. I basically made those in my game. And Okay. They definitely punch well above their uh well above their weight class because they're they only have like four hit points, but they cause paralysis and they can heal they're like they basically gained like how i made it was um like if they have a 30 foot like they'll scream if you're in that 30 feet they will um paralyze you like you got to make a save of course but it'll paralyze you and then they can keep moving up to you they move slowly but if they get a hold of you they'll just latch on to you you're grappled and then they'll start like eating you essentially and so you're paralyzed there and they're gaining temporary hit points off this. So, like, they're getting oh, stronger no. the, like, the more they hurt you. <laughs> but if you get them, if you kill them before um, they do that, before they latch on to someone, then, you know, they're really easy to kill. They're only, like, four hit points. So that's one monster that I really like throwing in, and it terrifies players whenever they encounter it for the first time. Because I'll, like, set them out, like these creatures just kind of like minding their own business, kind of hunched over like they are in, uh, you know, Ocarina of Time, kind of hunched over. And one of the players will go like approach it and then it'll wake it 
and it'll scream and then that player won't be able to move and it like once that happens and everyone's like "Uh oh whoops like they start freaking out (laughs) that's a really good one to like throw into the game just to mess with your party yeah any anytime you can get the uh the the party to get scared that's 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 when you know the when, once a character can't move the fight has become serious yeah or like once uh like one of the players goes down at least in previous editions that's when the game got serious but it's a little easier in 5e yeah uh so when you when you homebrew monsters do you do you worry about do you, do you homebrew them from a to fit into your world or to fit where the party is at in the campaign? I So I go about it this way. Like I tell my players you're going to like before we in session 0, I tell my players like that I am a difficult dungeon master. Like I'm not going to pull my punches and I'm going to throw things at you that you may not be able to handle 100% of the time. Like if it makes sense for this creature to be here, it will be there. Like, so if they go to a crypt, you know, there's going to be a skeletal champion there. Like if it's like a major uh, crypt of like, uh, you know, a whole bunch of warriors or whatever, they're going to be filled with skeletal champions. It makes sense for a skeletal champion to be there. If the players go down in there, they start rooting around or whatever, you know, and they're level one or two and they can't really deal with a CR three creature several of them then that's on them you know they can they can run away they can get out of there they can approach the dungeon at a later date or they can play smart and that's what i encourage them to do so when it comes to like cr or whatever i don't care like i will throw a you know an adult dragon at my party at fifth level like they're level five i'm throwing an adult dragon at them and it's because i want them to solve it in ways other than just attacking it because dragons are intelligent creatures extremely intelligent creatures and they should be spellcasters too so mine are yeah and so when i put these things in front of the party they're not always meant to hit it and so i make sure that my players know that from the very beginning like it's important that they know that obviously because i'm throwing things that they shouldn't be able to handle at first but i will still allow ways for them to solve the situation like we're talking earlier like the players were going through my dungeon didn't kill a single goblin for the goblin encampment or whatever i still allowed them to gain the experience from it because they beat the encounter i don't care if they kill the creature exactly right they have there was an encounter there was an obstacle and they were able to navigate around that obstacle that's where you yeah and i feel when you kind of have that structure in mind like that kind of mentality in mind of not every combat is going to be to the death not every encounter or dungeon has to be um like a the drawing of swords or something like that um and when you go into it with that mentality i feel like you'll get a lot more a lot more mileage out of a lot of these monsters because then you can have repeat offenders because you know if your players are going up against a vampire and they know that they don't necessarily have to kill it right this instant you know 
they're like they're gonna track this vampire down like they they came across it they know it's around here somewhere it's gotta it's gotta you know hide during the uh day somewhere then they can go into you know once they find the location they can go in there during the day and you know kill the vampire the vampire could be 13th level and they could be a first level party i'll still let them i'll still let them do that you know yeah i I, and i i agree i'm the same way i try to i make sure all my players know before the campaign like you said you normally session zero at least by session zero if i haven't played with them before but i let them know that the the world the the world is how it is going to be if you go in like in in your campaign setting the the twilight zone i'm i'm not sure if that's twilight lands the name of <laughs> twilight lands the twilight lands uh if they go into the twilight lands that is supposed to be difficult now there's there's ways to get like you were saying, if your your players can solve it without their character sheets, they're going to have a better chance of punching above their class. Yeah. Whereas if you, I I, I feel and I feel that ha- having, like you're saying, having that vampire go back to his place, well now the players know where he's at and can can maneuver it to a point where they can try and take him. Worst case scenario, they can retreat and then. After they've gained a little bit of levels or have that, you know, find an extra advantage somewhere, they can try and come back and it, it'll give it more meaning. Because yeah. it's not just another creature they're fighting. This is the one that, you know, in a couple of, in a number of rounds started wearing us down and we had to run and we're coming back to finish this. And it, it gives them that little bit of motivation that, that can go a long way if you have, if your players are open to it. Another thing I would recommend doing to anyone listening or watching this is the idea that hit points are the they, hit points only exist when initiative is rolled. So I do this in my games where yes. hit points are not a thing unless initiative has rolled, been rolled and combat has started. So this avoids the situation where like, the players will have someone like at knife point, like holding a, a knife to someone's neck, but it's a 20th level character. That dagger's not doing anything because it has too many hit points. Get that out of your head. Like if the players are like holding someone hostage or or being held hostage, even like if a play, one of the players is being held, like this should go both ways. Like if the players are being held hostage and like, they're being warned don't take a step further or i'll gut them i don't i let my players know that like, that will just automatically kill you there is no hit points because initiative hasn't been rolled and the damage would have been done before initiative would have been rolled you know because that's just right quick, one quick hand motion so well and uh go ahead another example would be uh it, it would be a higher level character but like a a sorcerer that has, you know, wiggled their way into the the king or duke's court, and then they subtle cast dominate person and have the the king, you know, put a crossbow bolt to his chin and pull the trigger. Oh well, that only does a d8. Yeah. Well, that's 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 very anticlimactic, and Absolutely. I feel like the what the players, 
if you're doing it right, the player should have to struggle to get to a point where they can take someone out. Yeah, and one of one of the metrics that I use for like anything like that is I ask myself like how many resources are the players using to accomplish this thing? If they're using like if they're stacking things up like just to get this one thing off and it works, I let it succeed completely. Like critical success like yeah. like you're saying like if they manage to work and whittle their way and like use resources to get close to the king and then they're casting a spell to cause the king to do this and it actually like the king survives or sorry uh like fails at save fails. and then like no one was able to stop him from pulling across but like if it's gotten all the way up to that point let it work don't include hit absolutely points. let it work like if the if your players have gone around and found a time where the king isn't surrounded by guards and doesn't have his, uh, you know, court wizard there, and they they have found a moment where the king, or this th- this idea, this plan will work, you you got to reward that level of planning, or the players won't do it next time. Yeah, you, if you, that's what the game you're wanting, that's what you have to reward. Yeah, you, you you're basically from the moment that your players set foot at your table or like sit down at your table you are training them how to play and so whenever you allow them to like let's say like you make a game in such a way that like they only gain experience from killing things and not from just solving the encounter you are training them to be murder hobos if you are exactly if you are not allowing them to pull off these you know kind of off the walls like long long con heist things you know like the assassination of the king that we're talking about if you're not letting them pull things off and like letting that succeed they will never try that again they already know it failed like it's gonna fail so you are training your players every time you do things at the table and so it's important to pay attention what you let them what you do and do not let them do and i I think that's one of the reasons uh I i don't know if you've seen it i've noticed especially younger like when when i was younger like it was experience that's how you leveled up and that's why a lot of people kind of have that murder hobo ideology and i think that's one of the reasons we're swing seeing more people switch to milestone leveling too because it it's it's a simpler way instead of counting how many blocks the rogue is picked or counting how many magical things the wizard has been able to navigate around just cutting out all that and giving milestone experience instead of breaking it down into circumventing the monsters i personally still like experience but i understand why a lot of people go to milestone i don't use milestone specifically because i like to avoid because again we're training the players how to play when you have only milestones it basically tells your players to not interact with anything other than the main story. Like we just need to get to this next milestone to level up. They're going to want that next level up. And so they're going to, they're going to be like, ah, this is unimportant. we got to get back to the main story. And if you want to flesh out your world, then maybe milestone, like if you have one linear uh, chat saying side quest milestones, I mean, yeah, but the the issue is still there with the whole 
Curse of Strahd has that built in. I understand that, but when you still do milestone situations, I'm talking about like the minute things. Like when you're interacting with NPCs, the players aren't going to care about any of your NPCs unless they're going to get a a hint of that. Like, oh, is this important? Is this in the side quest? Is this a milestone that I could get? Um, what about players setting their own milestones? That's not a bad idea. With the DM well, veto. And, uh, well, and I mean, if that would that would definitely have to be between the player and the DM. And I, I feel if you do if you're allowing your players to set their milestones, that would have to be something that is okayed in advance, like yeah, session zero or a couple the, sessions ahead. That's what the chat's saying. Like the DM has the ability to veto it ahead of time. But. Absolutely. I, I think that would be an interesting way to go, but that would also be reliant on having a party that ha- they would have to have enough, they would have to be comfortable enough with their character to pick a milestone for their character. Yeah. So I like don't think that would be of, the answer for all parties. Yeah, that's definitely kind of player or like individual player dependent because I don't imagine that kind of thing would jive well with uh, like power gamers would probably unintentionally abuse that. You know, but I still power gamers can leave my table. <laughs> That's one way to do it. But um, we'll see. Uh, I still like experience, though. Like experience is still, I feel, the best way to do it. It's just how you determine handing out experience. Absolutely, and I, I, I lean the same way you do with, with this is the encounter, and if y'all can get to the other side of this encounter, you get the experience from that encounter. Whether it be talking to, making a truce with, you know, because I, I personally, uh, I think I've, I may have seen a video or two of yours expressing similar ideas. I don't have any evil races. Yeah, I don't So if, if, if the players go into a, they get a mission from, you know, the mayor of a town to stop the goblins from attacking... If they can go to the goblins, find out the goblins are attacking for this reason and are able to take care of that reason or help the goblins take care of it, you have you have completed that encounter. And most of the time I'll you reward get that them for that for too. I'll Absolutely. either give them more experience or like they'll have the allegiance of not only the town but a goblin warband. Like that's cool. <laughs> you know, you Absolutely. Could, like th- way more interesting. I I just tend to enjoy when players don't just automatically kill things but you have to train your players to work like that i suppose they they have to know that if they put in effort to talk that it's an option that if they they walk up and say hi let's you know kind of let's settle this diplomatically and then it breaks into a fight every time they're going to stop trying to settle it diplomatically if if it's going to come down to a fight well we might as well get the jump on them so if you like you're saying if you're you are telling your players what the what their objectives are so if if they if every time they try and set up a, like you're saying a long con or if they try and set up or handle something in a way they don't normally like your players who snuck through the entire 
goblin cave or got through the goblin cave without fighting, that lets your players know that that is an option. And if they go that route, they're not going to get burned on it, if I'm making any sense. Yeah. So how do you, um, do you kind of like, because we're still got to kind of stay on topic with homebrew, do you like, what if, uh, chat's saying, what if we inverted traditional EXP, like as a rule, reward less to no EXP for resolving an encounter by combat? I don't think that is the... I'm not uh, sure I would go that route. Uh, yeah, I would much rather just make experience like a flat rate experience like just solve the encounter you get the experience um because when you start de-incentivizing combat you do the exact opposite problem and they won't ever like players already want to mitigate character death that would just cement it further and they would do everything possible to avoid combat so i don't know if that's Absolutely. the way to go but where I was going was, how do you, since we got to kind of stick on topic with homebrew, how do you, what like homebrew elements do you use in your world that you use to teach your players how to play in your game? Because I have a few like, kind of like, not only homebrew items, but kind of like homebrew locations that I use to teach my players. But I want to hear your ideas first. So you're asking you what, what home, what elements have I homebrewed to get my players? I don't want to say behave, but to to encourage certain types of behavior. Yeah. Do you have any? Maybe I can throw one of mine I'm, out hey, there. Let me. I was about to say. Let me. Let me hear what. Give me an example, and I, I'm sure I'll have something to say on it. Well, I mean, we can kind of just talk about like originally. That's what the mimic was, right? I mean, we can all agree that the mimic was to just kind of trick players. Keep players and, on your toes. Yeah, that's a way of training your players how to play. So those kinds of monsters. So I have um, kind of like a specific monster that I use. Um, it's not necessarily a shadow but it's an it's not like the sh the traditional shadow but it's like this it's kind of like the mix between a pudding like a black pudding and a shadow if that makes any sense but the reason why i use it is um its weakness its weakness is uh torchlight like it, it like actual light and heat so it like like retracts from torchlight and the reason why i do this and i throw it it's fairly easy to kill all you have to do is set it on fire it's kind of like made out of oil but it can suffocate the players and stuff like that but the reason why i do that specifically that it's afraid of torchlight is because i don't like players just going into dungeons just like oh i have dark vision or oh i cast yes. you know daylight spell or i cast um you know light spell or something like that it won't work and then these things attack and smother you. And unless you light them on fire, they're extremely hard to kill because you can't just chop at them. So those that's an example of how I've homebrewed a monster to train my players in such a way that they know that, you know, 
not everything can be solved by just going into a dark dungeon with uh with what's it called uh dark vision or something dark vision or yeah devil side or something that something that ignores torches keeping torches useful yeah um the 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 closest to that i i have off the top of my head i haven't used her yet but i have a puppy i have a homebrew it's a it's a fiendish puppy and she's not mean she's not vicious but she the encounter will not be solved by combat it's my idea for the for hell puppy is to take an object that the essentially a key an item that the party needs to move forward and she she teleports through shadow she has legendary actions to get out of grapples she's just slippery and she can't be so it's going to take the party it's going to take multiple members working together to get the dog to get the puppy to use up its its abilities to be elusive in order to for them to actually catch it so one of them can get the key back it's like a like basically a teamwork encounter essentially yes like the the hell puppy's not going to pose a a life or death threat to them it's just going to make it so that they have to on some level coordinate to kind of take out the the puppy's to use up the puppy's actions and to put it in a mechanical term to use up the what the dog can do in one turn in one turn of initiative so that they they can act someone can actually get hands on the dog and get whatever item that it's it has retrieved that way they they can't just all go in there and rush it because it'll get away so it kind of as you were saying a a teamwork exercise something that they're going to have to coordinate on yeah and if you're listening or watching this like when you start homebrewing things i think you should really think about like what your monsters or like what the things that you're homebrewing are teaching your players because your players are learning from you like they're learning how you run your game they're learning how you build encounters they're absorbing all of that information whether you realize it or not and everything you put in front of them you're training them a little bit on how to interact with your game so definitely if you do a lot of homebrew and stuff like keep in mind like what what it your homebrew item actually like how it impacts the play at the game because like one of the things i do for a monster another meta game thing that i do for a monster is like i'll describe um like a salamander you know uh yeah wait are they salamanders basilisk the one that like petrifies you okay yeah so i'll have my uh like i'll basically kind of like describe what would be a basilisk and everything like that and so like if you have a player that kind of just like oh that's a basilisk i'm gonna avert my eyes you know and kind of how would your character know that? Like, if, you, if you're saying it's what my character would do, how does your character know that? You know what I mean? Like, you didn't make any knowledge check. Absolutely. That's a metagame thing. So go ahead. I will let you avert your eyes. But this thing is not a basilisk, and it breathes fire. And you are averting your eyes so you don't get your safe. Like, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Well, and 
and to touch on, you said you were talking about it earlier. When you're home, another reason to homebrew monsters is if you do have you know veteran players who you know they they know how to take down a troll, they know how to handle a basilisk, they they know they are used to all these monsters. So having yeah. a homebrew monster, which uh, real quick, if you if you're using monsters out of the monster manual or out of Wizards of the Coast, don't use the monster's name. When you're telling the, unless they they have done research and have found out what the creature that lives in the forest is, they don't know the name of that monster. Yeah. As soon as you say it's a troll, fire. They're going to make that connection. Yeah. So homebrewing a monster keeps them on their toes. That and just like if you you know we're talking about describe it, like not saying the name. A good way to do that is just describe it, like as they see it. And then they have to either decide to make the intelligence role of some kind to identify it or just guess. And like, if you don't say the name and you're just describing what they would see, I guarantee you they're like their imagination is going to be way more intimidating than you just saying, you know, oh, it's a troll fire. Yeah. Like you're saying, you know their own imagination will work against them. And I think that's like what you should be doing. If they pick up, like you're saying, if you describe it, and especially don't just describe it once they see the monster, but if it's, if it's a monster that has like a troll, like a troll would probably have a very distinct smell to it. So if you're getting close to a troll's lair. Oh. I think you cut out again. Hello? You there? I'm back. Oh, you're back now. Cool. But what I was saying is, as they get close to the monster's lair, drop in clues of what kind of monster it is. It is it a carnivore? Then there would be, you know, carcasses of animals lying around. If don't don't describe the monster describe kind of clues to the monster before they actually engage and then when they do see the monster you describe the monster and if they they'll pick up on a one part of that description and it'll usually be in a way that you hadn't thought they would they would pick up on yeah and a lot of times you can like use that like intuition that they may have you know it might be wrong but you could just kind of like homebrew it on the spot and be like that's way cooler than what i was thinking that's what it is you know what i mean like don't be so yeah. rigid um and like one thing i do is like i will just give monsters abilities on the fly like if i think that they should just have an ability in this particular moment then i will just give it to a monster I mean, you could argue that that's kind of cheating, I guess, but I largely disagree. Like, you're there to, as a dungeon master, to put things in front of the players to tell a narrative. And so, like, if I have to do that by slapping on, you know, a different character, a different ability, I'd much rather do that. Absolutely. And, and while I, I try not to do that, I try and think of it beforehand. If if the encounter Hello? 
His internet is probably bad. We gotta back out again. Well, don't worry. We've only got like 15 minutes left of this podcast. Just bear with me. <laughs> well, if you are listening or watching on this on YouTube, you should at this point put something in the comments and I can read it for next time's episode, whenever that is. I, th I think it's going to be Thursday again. Anyway, chat was saying that they like to use red herring monsters, and I also agree. Um, it's not necessarily sneaky if you're describing monsters one way, but they work another way. Or at least I don't think they're sneaky in that regard. Like, doing that is very sneaky. It can feel cheap, but I guarantee you it will... Oh, is he back? Are you back? Back in? Yes, you I are. Think I am. There we are. Okay. I'm getting faster at it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. But just a, just allowing your monsters that bit of wiggle room can can enrich that encounter is what I was is the point I was trying to make. Yeah. And I was just talking about like using like a red herring monster, like describing a monster one way, but it functioning a different way. Like I was describing like how it may feel cheap, like you're kind of cheating. But I don't think that's necessarily an issue because a lot of times there's a lot of like someone who's never seen a goblin before. Like, how would you describe that? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like you're going to get details wrong. And so the people that are experiencing these, these things like your the characters that would be experiencing these things like immediately they're going to get wrong information just like at first glance especially if they're being attacked like this is just what they can absorb unless they're making a check if they're making a check and the players succeed at the like the check to know what it is then I'll give them more accurate information but i very often will like kind of almost describe a monster just on the grounds of you don't know what it is. Just, just what, just like one characteristic and a or a vague outline of it. Is that yes. what you're getting well, at? Yeah, I'll go more into detail, but like I will, like, like almost describe something accurately. Like it's accurate enough, but not quite there. Like if I'm going to describe a skeleton, for instance, like everyone knows what a skeleton is. It's pretty indistinguishable from anything else or it's pretty distinguishable from everything else. But if you are talking about like uh, some lizard of some kind, like you don't know what it is. It just looks like a lizard. It could be a basilisk. It could be a lizard folk. It could be, you know, uh, a, a pseudo dragon. It could be a baby dragon. So I will almost describe what it is, but it'll never accurately be what it is until they make that knowledge check absolutely describe describe it as how your players would understand how the 
characters would understand it. And intent definitely intentionally get details wrong. Like just because you're the dungeon master does not mean you have to give them accurate information 100% of the time. Like you're allowed to lie to your players. In fact, I encourage it. Like if you're not out of character, don't lie to your players, lie to the characters, give them false information, give the characters inaccurate information from NPCs. Like your, your players should not trust everything that comes out of a, an NPC's mouth just because it's coming out of the dungeon master's mouth. You know what I mean? Absolutely. There's, there's a difference between what the dungeon master knows and what the local guard captain that you're yeah. talking to knows. And you, like give your players conflicting information, information, like make them second guess. Well, and especially if they're getting this information, if they, they get this quest from the bulletin board and it tells them to go talk to this person, they saw the monster. Then having that, the account that the NPC gives them may be blown out of proportion. That's another good way to do it. Well, I mean, it's, it's the same as, a, uh, as at, talking to a fisherman about the size of the fish he caught. <laughs> well now this every time you now, tell the story this, you gain a couple inches yeah well the 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 by the time the player the you know the bulletin's been posted and the players find it and go talk to this guy he's already been telling his drinky drinking buddies how how ferocious and how he stood against this huge monster and they go out and they find it's it's a it's a giant toad <laughs> Instead of this huge, you know, demon frog that from another realm, well, yeah. the, the guy may have been drinking a little bit when he was out there. But dev, absolutely, if your your NPCs, they're they're humans. They they have flaws. Yeah, definitely. Like I always, like if I'm playing an NPC, you know, to my players or whatever, I constantly lie to them or give them misinformation or red herrings or whatever and so like it kind of makes a game where the players have to seek out the truth and that kind of again trains your players to engage with npcs more because if they're constantly getting misinformation they need more npc interaction to eke out the truth and so if you're doing it that way like if you if your players aren't interacting with your npcs just have your NPCs lie to them more often. I guarantee you they'll start paying attention to who says what. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, if they if they go and talk to the fishermen about the lake monster and then they talk to, you know, the the lumberjack about the monster in the forest and every time they talk to an NPC, they're getting hard facts from them. They have no reason to go and get a second opinion. Yeah. They have no reason to go talk to anyone else. But if you if you lie to them, if that NPC not even lies to them, just tells them something wrong or forgets to tell them this one detail, they will try and make they will try and verify that information the next time they get it. Yeah, and don't let your players like like push further. Like if if an NPC like if you don't want an npc to know something or like have that knowledge 
don't let your players kind of like push further. Don't give don't give them any more information. Like if if that fisherman doesn't know any information about any of the locals because they don't like interact with the locals or they don't care about like the politics of what happens in town, then don't let your players know that information, even if they make a high roll. Like that's just not something your NPC would know or that particular NPC would know regardless of what they roll, they're not going to get that information. Or if they do try to, you know, get that information from that one NPC somehow, it's not going to be reliable. It's just going to be like whatever the dude could, you know, tell you to get off his back. You know what I mean? Exactly. If, if you have a, cause every, every campaign, every party I've had, they wind up being decked out and like armed to the teeth. And if though a party of, you know, high powered mercenaries walks up and it's like, no, you're going to tell us the NPC. They'll tell, tell them something just to get them to stop her, get the party to stop harassing them. Yeah. And that's, I feel like that, that would be a beautiful moment to the, the NPC panics and tells them, Oh yeah, it's, it doesn't like lightning. The NPC didn't know. <laughs> the N- the NPCs never fought this monster. The NPCs saw the monster and did what NPCs do. It ran away. Yeah. And then, so it, it may not have any further information, but if they're pushed hard enough, they'll tell you something, maybe. And then the players will like try to attack the monster with lightning, and then you could homebrew the monster where lightning actually makes it more powerful and actually hastes it. Like a shambling mound, I think, is one of that where that happens. So, like, <laughs> you know... That's ways that you could just kind of yeah, they, homebrew they, something off the bat. Well, the, the when they when they forced the NPC to answer, he knew there was about lightning, but he he didn't remember what it was, so he just blurted something about lightning. He remembered the wrong thing. Yeah, he so. he didn't quite recall. So it's lightning's important. He's just not sure why. Yeah, lie to your players. That no, lie to your sorry. Public lie to the characters. Yes, lie to the characters, that's not the players. <laughs> but uh that's like we got like five minutes left. So uh Wow. Do you want to start making closing remarks and then we can close this out? Don't leave just yet uh, yeah. if you're leaving. If you're if you're listening, don't leave just yet. But yeah, we can uh, uh, we can start uh, closing remarks. So I do have one question for you. Absolutely. Do you, as as a dungeon master who who homebrews, do you feel that having one world is a benefit? Having one homebrew world that that you run, do you think that? that is something that plays to your advantage as a dungeon master? Uh, to me personally, yes. Um, I mean, but everyone else's mileage may vary. Um, like you say, you get bored and stuff, and that's, comp- like, I can understand that, you know, on just, like, a very basic level, but I don't really get it because, you know, if you approach it in kind of, like, a way that I do, like, I already built up, my world or like what i wanted like i you know over time i you know eventually got to the top down point 
and so I have like a overarching world, I guess. But every time I still start the session, like start the first session with no idea what's out there until I get to the table. You know what I mean? So I still do bottom up. Yeah. So I guess I do kind of like a combination of two. Maybe that's the best way to do it. But I would definitely say if you're like, uh, I would definitely say if like you're a, a new player, if you're just getting into this game, and this is like your first session, like that you're, like you want to do your own first session, your own campaign. I definitely think a bottom up approach will probably be your best start, because all you need is a town. That's it. Like you could you absolutely. Know, all you need is a town and a dungeon nearby and maybe like a wizard's tower that's a little bit further than the dungeon so they have someplace else to go. But if you're a new player and you're trying to build a world, like an entire world, I feel like you're going to get bogged down and you're going to focus on the wrong things. I think so. I've, I, I agree with you. If you're for for new dungeon masters, don't it's building from top down. There's there's so many things that you can that you can get stuck on. There's yeah. so many you there's so many small details that you you can worry about, but solving those details that may not be directly relevant takes time away from from preparing things that your players are actually going to to need and things that you actually do need to have answers for. Whereas when you're, like you're saying, if you start with a village, a dungeon, and a place of interest, that's, that's all you need to get started in Dungeons & Dragons. I will say that if you are dead set on doing a top-down approach, what I would, like, the main piece of advice that I would give is what characters are at your table. If you have a cleric at your table... You could build an entire pantheon, sure. You can, you know, fill out all their domains. You can, you can, you know, come up with all of their different, you know, things that these gods worry about and all that kind of stuff. Or, and this is the thing I would recommend, or you could just focus on the god that the player is going to interact with. And then next, like keep that. And then next time you run a game or maybe a new cleric enters into the party, you make the god for that player or that you know new character and then now you have two gods and you just build it up over time that's what i did um but if the, if so, you're determined so, to do it that way like build from top down focus on what's actually going to be at your table yes so if you're so i think one of the points we may be kind of dancing around is maybe not so much bottom bottom down bottom up or top down but maybe middle out like instead of instead of having the entire pantheon and all the royalty of all the nations only have what you need for your players to interact with if your players aren't dealing with royalty then it's then it's a non issue Yeah, I don't have any arguments against that. So, I guess that's the closing remarks. <laughs> well, 
Thank you for listening and tuning in to Dougie's Dungeon Podcast. This will be uploaded on Friday. I don't know why I'm telling the listener this, because if they're listening to it, it'll already be that day. (laughs) But anyway, do you want to go ahead and shout yourself out one more time? Uh, One more time. uh, That's Thistle Sifter on TikTok and Thistle underscore Sifter on Instagram. And you can find this podcast on pretty much any listening platform, Spotify, iTunes, blah, blah, blah. And then um, YouTube. Yes, sir. All right. Well, let's get out of here. Well, well, thanks for having me on. Thanks for being on. It was a blast. It was fun. We'll have to do it again. All right. Adios. Adios.